When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Baby, you don't know what you're saying. What brings you down then? I'm studying London College of Fashion. Right, room is on the top floor. It's perfect. I love it. I could live any place and any time I'd live here in London in the 60s. Last night, I saw something in my dreams. There was a girl. And you are? Sandy. Gift. I can see people, places, things others can't. This is the closest most people ever get to their dreams. They're not just dreams. Jack, I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? It really happened. What did you see? Leaving Oscar and Emmy-winning composer Stephen Price channeled his love of music from the 1960s in his latest work on thriller Last Night in Soho. Directed by Edgar Wright, the film follows Ellie, played by Thomasin McKenzie, who begins to find herself transported between present day and London in the 1960s, where she enters the body of a singer, played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Price is the film's composer, and he additionally produced two extended versions of Downtown, performed by Taylor Joy. This marks his fourth project with Wright, having previously collaborated on Baby Driver, The World's End, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Price is our guest today on Behind the Screen. He's a 2014 Oscar winner for Gravity, and he collected an Emmy last month for David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. I'm Carolyn Giardino. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Stephen, congratulations and thanks for joining us. Ah, it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much indeed. Good to see you. Good to see you again too. Last night in Soho, uh, I know, is a period of music that you really love. Uh, tell us about that. And uh, and I believe your record collection even appeared in the film. Well, it's it's a dream job in lots of ways. And I, I grew up with all this stuff. My, my whole start in music 
was um, my parents' record collection. So I've, my mum tells stories of me, you know, before I could speak, I was putting the records on, you know, the old vinyl thing from that they had when they were sort of teenagers. And uh, so, yeah, there's a scene early in the film where where uh, Tamsin's character, um, Eloise, is packing her suitcase to move to London and she starts to put all these records in the suitcase and that's basically um, a lot of very familiar vinyl albums that I grew up with. So, yeah, it's everything about this film was exciting because I got to play with this whole era that I kind of love the music of, but then bring it into a different sort of space as well and sort of play with that combination of the present day and the past. Now, this is your fourth collaboration with Edgar Wright. You also worked on Baby Driver, World's End, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Tell us about how the two of you start when he introduces a project to you and what were some of the things that you talked about early on? It's kind of, he's always great at getting me involved very early on. So I got sent a script, first draft of the script, I think, when it was first coming into being. And then he'd keep me updated with with various iterations of it. And we'd have the occasional chat and a dinner here and there where he basically would tell me what he was watching. You know, he, he was very keen on watching these films of the, the 60s period that were all set in London and seeing those streets coming back and that weird feeling of recognising a street that you pass every day, but, you know, there it is used for a different purpose back in the day. And so he was going into these ideas of, of looping around and seeing things afresh and this idea that London's this big, exciting place. And so we'd talk about those sort of things and I'd, I'd listen to scores from that and I spent a long time listening to John Barry scores and, you know, Ennio Morricone, sort of European, English, those sort of artier kind of side of, of film scores in back in the 60s. And a lot of those textures, and we'd talk about that and send things back and forth. And gradually it got closer to, to the film um, being shot. And I start then at that point kind of, you know, starting to work out what I might do for it. And I've never quite worked out how best to start on a film. But with some things I'll get into this phase where I'll just write a load of sweets. I'll write a load of bits of music just for me almost, just so I don't have a blank page, just to kind of work out almost what I'm not going to do. And with this one, I kind of, um, I did a few of those. And because I've worked with Edgar Lotz, there's none of that uh, nervousness anymore about sending someone something. And so I just sent this piece of music over and was like, what do you think of this? Does this this feel like it might belong? And that was a cue called Neon that you started with. Yeah, because some of the imagery in the film is is these neon lights that that flash on and off and kind of uh, a neon sign that sort of lights up um, Eloise's bedroom, you know, and it, it flashes on and off. And so I had this this track that kind of was inspired by that idea, really, the neon lights and things shining and, you know, London being this sort of glamorous but kind of grimy, nasty place at the same time. And I tried to capture it all in this piece, sent it to him. And then it turned out he was using it for, for camera tests and costume tests. And when the actors come in, he'd put, he'd put, when they were rehearsing, he'd put that track on and get people in the mood that way. So it felt like, you know, I was really involved from a really early stage in this one, which was, which was lovely. The thing about that one is it really has a lot of the major food groups that ended up going into the, the rest of the score. It was this this resource that I kept drawing into. So there are there are kind of woodwind um, themes in there, which, you know, develop more in the actual film. But, you know, they, they came from this sort of John Barry-esque sort of idea of kind of quite rich sounding woodwind things. But there's also John Carpenter-esque kind of synth textures in there. And Amongst that, there's all these loops. I got very obsessed with the idea of um, we loop through time in the film a lot. And that seemed to me to suggest tape loops, you know, and obviously a big thing in 1960s stuff was this This tape loops got very um, experimental, sort of in mid-60s onwards. And so I started playing with that. And so there's all these lines of dialogue and the instrument, the Mellotron, is obviously based on tape loops. So that became part of the texture. And all of that combines with the orchestra, um, 
so yeah, it, hopefully it kind of feels like it's this London-inspired thing. next key we're going to listen to is called When I Feel More at Home. And this was uh, effectively Ellie's theme in the movie. Stephen, what inspired this? I mean, Ellie's character in the film, I mean, I, I think she's wonderful, sort of the, the character that we, we we get from the performances. And she's got this gift. She can see her her mum, who had previously moved to, to London, and things had, had overwhelmed her and it become too much. And Ellie can still sort of see her. She has this sort of relationship with, with her mum, even though she's not there physically. And I tried to capture this this sense of of there's a two edges to to that relationship. You know, on one hand, it's this beautifully reassuring thing for Ellie, but on the other hand, there's an otherness to it. You know, and I tried to capture that in these this piano theme, which is always a little bit sort of off kilter. You know, it sort of tries to settle into something sweet, but then it's always shifting and feeling a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit other. And some of the style of it came from you know films like Don't Look Now that, that I talk about with Edgar, where you know these sort of childlike almost, but something sinister at the same time patterns would be set up. So that was kind of what I was trying to do. And as the film goes through, it sort of develops more and you hear this piece coming back in different ways. And, you know, gradually as the film goes on, it sort of, it starts to melt and become part of other textures as well. Well, let's listen to that one. Steve, I interviewed the editor, Paul Matchless, last week, and we were talking about how closely uh, all of the crafts had to work together in order to get the timing right in the way that the film cross-cuts between the 60s and the present day. Would you talk about how you worked with the other departments? Yeah, I mean, what's one of the great things about working on an Edgar film, and also now that we've all done 
a fair few. I mean, I, I'm one of the relative newcomers, really. I, this is my, my fourth project, but there's people like Paul have been working with him since his first TV series, you know, spaced back a long time back. And the same goes for the sound department. They've been with for a long, long time. So we're all very familiar with each other. And there's this great sort of freedom within it to, to have ideas and, and pass things around. And, you know, I, I would work very closely with Paul and certainly I can't think of another editor I would give as many elements that weren't finished as I give to Paul. I give him sort of pieces that I'm, I'm in progress with and to see what he'll make of it. And sometimes he'll apply it to the picture in a way that I would never have imagined, you know, and that will then inspire me to do the next thing. And likewise with the, the sound department, I, I had this idea quite early on, again, building on this idea of tape loops and echoes from the past, you know, that phrases that are said in, in 1960s London could kind of echo through time and in some of the, the film score based in the present day, you hear these sort of weird, distorted echoes of, of what was going on before. And of course, that involves a whole collaboration with the dialogue department. And, you know, they, they would provide me elements that I can then play with. And, you know, and, and because we're all good friends, there's no sense of treading on any toes. It's all just whatever makes it work, you know. And it's something we, we developed a lot during the Baby Driver project where everything in that film was was based on musical rhythm and notes. There's not a, a sound effect in that film that wasn't tuned at some point or put into a place in a song so it feels like it's totally entwined. So myself and my music editor is a fantastic chap called Bradley Farmer who works very closely with with the sound effects department to, to pitch various bits of theirs so that it really feels complementary with the music. You know, it's all stuff that we, we've kind of been developing with each film. And I feel on this one, we took that to really interesting places because it's so story based you know every every decision um, that was being made sonically was really entwined with the visuals and the, what Paul was cutting and what they'd shot and it was the whole thing came together so big conceptual things were were attempted I mean there's there's a bit at the beginning of the film that you, you may not even notice the first time you see it but the first period in the film is really very close up on on the stage mono is almost you know you're not really hearing anything in the surround speakers at all until the moment we enter 1960s london when all of a sudden the, the music blooms around you and you're surrounded by the traffic of the 1960s and that sort of sequence would only be possible if we were all talking all the time and just planning how we might achieve these things so it's great when it it comes off your music was even played on set during production isn't that right yeah, there, there were pieces that I'd done. So I, I was writing these suites that I'd call mirror suites early on based on all this mirror in, imagery. And um, I would just, whenever I finished one, I'd just send it on to Edgar and then you'd you'd hear later on that it had been played. And, and in the edit, it was, it was fascinating because I, I would suddenly get a, a new assembly of a, a scene that they'd just shot and I'd recognize the bit of music and it was a piece I'd written but used in a in a, a strange way, you know, maybe the bit I thought was the big important bit was now small. I, I liken it to, you know, songwriters working with um, a great lyricist. All of a sudden you'd think the verse was the chorus and the chorus was the verse. You know, they would they would look at it in a different way and that would then set me off on my next series of adventures, you know. Edgar likes to have a lot of music on set, you know, and I, certainly because he's working very rhythmically, you know, it's handy sometimes for, for those actors who like to have a little bit of something in their ear. It might affect the way they walk, but it might affect the way that they deliver their lines. So, you know, I think it was it was not just score. There were some of the songs as well that were that were in the film that if there was a, a sequence that was really going to be based strongly on a song and the rhythms of that song, they might just have it sort of played in the, in the actor's ear so they could, you know, adapt their movements or feel like they were almost dancing along with it in a way that, you know, just, just would come across when we got into the edit later on. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The next cue we're going to listen to is called Leave Me Alone. And this is from a part of the film where the 60s London and the present day are really blending. Tell us about that cue. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the the central parts of the film, and and you know, without without wanting to give any spoilers, I think sort of it's it's clear that things you know get to quite a dark place in in uh, Ellie's life in London, and you know, there's there's a, an element of the the '60s and the present day coming together, and this is one of the scenes where where really we got to unleash with that, and things keep building and escalating, and um, you know, there's examples in this cue of of how. Uh, we'd have these these um, music concrete elements of, of looping vocals and looping ideas and strange things coming in from from all angles. A little revolution number nine, the Beatles track, was kind of an influence on some of this stuff. Where you know it's it's becomes haunting all of these repeated voices and strange backward things that you can't really tell, and orchestral elements that aren't quite where they should be. And then it gradually builds up into quite a a, a band based track. You know, there's um fantastic drum performance by a guy called Ian Thomas at the end of this and um, some Hammond playing which is some of my favourite in the film by a brilliant player called Dave Arch and the whole thing just builds into this sort of orchestral but also quite sort of 60s you can imagine some of this being played in a, a 60s club you know the sort of the, the bass drums and, and Hammond kind of feel to, to the end of it so it was a yeah it was a fun track to do it just kept building recording was done at Abbey Road, isn't that right? Yeah, we did a lot at Abbey Road. We did um, vocals and things like that. We did at uh, a place called British Grove, also in, in London. But yeah, Abbey Road felt like the, the perfect place for this, you know, and, and we uh, tried to, to use some of the techniques that would have been used at the time. We used a lot of the same microphones that were, were being used back in the, the, the 60s, the early 60s, and a lot of the same equipment. There's, you know, old compressors and things like that that look like old military things that they keep at Abbey Road and they've looked after all of that time and you know when you put your your drums through those things a little bit of your brain kind of realizes what that sound is you know and that, those walls in Abbey Road have, have heard all of this stuff you know and so bouncing these sounds back off it you got a little bit of that authenticity in there as well so it was it was yeah lovely to to get musicians back in there all playing in the same place as well so it was um it was good were these musicians that you had worked with before? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've been very lucky over the last few years to, to, you know, project on project, you just develop relationships with these people and you, you work out your, your favourite players and, you know, you can almost write now with these people in your ears. So there's some fantastic musicians in this. And, you know, there were some occasions um, later on in the process where we, we could record more musicians in a room than we've been able to during the pandemic. So it was this sense of um, kind of celebration at the end of it that we had people all playing together again. And I think that you can feel that in some places. There's a real spirit to some of the performances. One of the more orchestral moments in the film is toward the end, a cue called You Have to Let Me Go. Tell us about that. It was it was one of the things that I really wanted to to do in this film was to 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 really go for it with one of the the orchestral cues, a real piece where everyone got to to really sort of emote. And there's this section at the end of the film that I always had my eye on and wrote this piece of music quite early on. And it was one of the few occasions in in my career where there's been this brilliant back and forth with the cutting room where you know I'd written a bit of music and and they'd edited it to it and something wasn't quite feeling right. And yet I couldn't kind of move the music round. I couldn't kind of find the right way to, 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 um, to change the music, to make it hit. So I actually ended up asking for more seconds of, of footage to make it really sort of land. And, you know, because we worked together on it, it's kind of now la lands in these beautiful places that, that I was really, really chuffed with. And there's some great sort of uh, performances again. And John Mills is the lead violinist on this and got to really do this emotive part. And it all... It felt like the sort of cue that you might get to write in a, a 60s period film, you know, and, and recording it in the, the Studio One at Abbey Road was just one of those those glorious things where you felt like, you know, it was a standalone performance. There's no trickery. There's no synth. There's no post-production. It's just a, a, a traditional recording and um, a band playing really, really great. Stephen, in addition to the score, you also produced and arranged the record Downtown with Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah, it's, uh, one of the great um, joys of this project um, has been working with Anya. At, at the script stage, I was aware there was this sequence where her character, Sandy, is going to be doing an audition and she sings a version of Downtown. And um, we didn't know quite how we were going to accomplish this. We didn't know, you know how it would go. We didn't know if we were going to have a piano player playing with it or anything. So I went to, to the studio they were working at, Elstree Studios, just outside London. And we we basically very early one morning just got together with myself, a pianist, Anya and Edgar. And it's like, well, this is what we want to do. This is the song Downtown. Let's have a go. And she just blew us away. She just kind of sang this brilliant version of it. You know, and I, I suggested we went a bit slower and we made it a, a bit more kind of a, a moody, spooky version. And she immediately grasped that and has this brilliant breathy kind of quality to her voice which just made it sound kind of spooky wonderful weird but but perfect for the character so we recorded that and they they shot that in the film 
And that led Edgar and myself to discuss, you know, we should we should get more of Anya singing. And she's now the central voice in the score. She sings all the way through the, the film score. The idea being that her character, Sandy, is, is kind of this siren song calling us back to the 60s all the time. Wherever Ellie is, she's always hearing this kind of voice. When she first goes in the room in Mrs. Collins' house where she stays, the first thing you hear is a little echo of the voice of, of Sandy, you know, calling her back to the 60s. And then when we finished the film, it was like, well, we could still do something else, you know, and that we had this brilliant um, one verse of downtown we'd done for the film. And the idea came to, to do more. And so we actually recorded three more songs. We've done um, a version of downtown, which is uh, in the 60s kind of style. We've done it, you know, pretty much as per the original record, but went back, got fantastic band in a fantastic room, recorded it all the energy in the world and then Anya sang that she did um, another song which is huge in the film called You're My World by Scylla Black originally and then uh, when we were recording it Edgar came up to me and said um, we should do a version that's um, that builds on the trailer you know we should do a version a, a mysterious version and I'm sitting there with with 50 musicians in the room with no plan whatsoever for doing this this is the first <laughs> that we discussed it and it was great. We just kind of, um, you know, chose a tempo. I, I sat with the, the the pianist, this great guy called Dave Arch. Uh, we we changed the arrangement of the, the the strings, and we recorded this this spooky version with all the the backing vocals live in the room, everyone playing together. Really, sort of slow down, spooky version of Downtown, which I then took away to my studio and added some of the the sounds that are associated with the score. So there's mellotrons and a little bit of bass stuff and various keyboards and guitars that I played here. Um, and then we got Anya to to do another vocal on it um, over in LA, and of course she was brilliant. And so we now have this single that we're putting out for the uh, the film, and I believe there's a, a video for it as well that will be coming out soon. Um, and it's, yeah, it's this great sort of honouring the film version of Downtown. And um, I'm really proud of it. It just sounds like, a, um, yeah, something unique for the film. You, you kind of know the song, but you don't know it like this. So it was, it was great to do. So Stephen, this has been a busy year for you. In addition, last month you won your first Emmy. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, that was a, a lovely, lovely surprise. What's next on your plate? Uh, well, Soho opens tomorrow, um, which we're all very, very excited about. Um, there's a show that, that I've got out at the moment as well called um, Earthshot, which is uh, something uh, building on the, the David Attenborough film that, that I was lucky enough to win the Emmy for, uh, which is about the Earthshot Prize, which is kind of the first big prize for the environment. So I did a lot of music for that. And that's um, uh, a prize run by Sir David Attenborough and um, Prince William over here in the UK. And I believe that's out on Discovery. 
Um, and then the next movie that's coming out should be uh, a project called um, Distant, which I made for Amblin Productions earlier this year, which we're, we're all excited about, which is takes me back into, into space and um, uh, crash landing on an alien planet. Will the one that you just mentioned be your first uh, return to space, so to speak, since gravity? It will, yeah. It was kind of, um, yeah, it was, it was very interesting. It's a very, very different film. It's a, you know, it was great fun to, to, to be up in space, but, but doing it all a different way. And it's, uh, it's a, a very um, good, fun adventure kind of, you know, some, some scares in there as well. But it was, uh, yeah, a lot of music, and um, got to record that with great LA musicians. So, looking forward to that one being out. And could you tell us a little bit more about this project with David Attenborough and Prince William? Yeah, it's called the the Earthshot Prize, and um, the idea being that it's to reward various innovators in the space of of climate change. Basically, people who are finding solutions, and uh, you know whether they be for for waste products or improving air quality or water, whatever it may be. And um, the awards are actually uh, going to happen every year for the next ten years at least. And hopefully, it's just going to encourage more and more people to to make some of these um, innovations that will actually help the planet. You know, we do an awful lot of, of worrying about it and seeing what terrors are happening, but there are people working really hard to, to, to innovate and to come up with scientific solutions that may actually make a massive, massive difference. So the idea is to, to give those a voice, give those the promotion that they need and hopefully allow them to expand and, you know, we've got to accelerate all of that. So there's a five-part documentary series associated with that show, which I did the, the score for. Um, which is available, I believe, streaming um, now. And yeah, this, this will develop hopefully and build over the next 10 years to hopefully make a difference to, to the planet. Stephen, it's been great to talk to you again. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Lovely to speak to you. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.